UNFTR. And there are certain things, which messages which are allowed to get out, and there are certain messages which are not. And the class issue, you can talk about the environment, you can talk about the desire for peace, you can talk about opposition to contra-aid, but if you get on the air and you say, I'm sympathetic, not if you get on the air, but if you're a public official, I'm sympathetic to the Sandinista government. I think it was right they made their revolution. They're trying to do the right thing. No good. There are probably three people in the entire United States Congress who would hold that view. All right? You can be against contra aid. That's, that's legitimate. Okay? But you can't be pro-Sandinista. And you can't. But the real bottom line of all these things is the class issue. That's the one that they're very, very sensitive about. Wealth and power. Who controls the world? Who owns the world? There was an interesting article. Uh, of course, it doesn't make the mass meter either. It was uh, a study that, that came out that shows one half of 1% of the American population now owns 45% of the wealth. 10% own 83% of the wealth. Now, you're not going to hear that talked about. But it means after all is said and done, a few got it all. They own every goddamn thing. The media is becoming tighter and tighter. Gannett owns now 91 daily newspapers. Okay. Okay, they own cable television. You know, these, these uh, and those issues you're basically not allowed to talk about. Now and then they'll put it on. But basically, those are themes that they don't really want to hear about. Ah, Bernie. From 1987, the year the Fairness Doctrine died. In our first installment of the two-part FCC series, we discussed the origins of the Federal Communications Commission, the reason it came into existence, and the tension between its charge and the First Amendment. Our story resumes with a nod to the Chicago School, the one-two punch of the Reagan and Clinton administrations to deliver a death blow to media competition in the United States, and the recent history of net neutrality. Let's fucking go. Listen to us talk, we're a world-renowned. Download our podcast. Where you will consume all the doom and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack. Past your ears into your mind, through the heart, all the facts. On your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., William N., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger 1, Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. The Coe's Theorem. Let's set the table with some familiar economic faces from our Chicago school days. Recall that one of the influential economists from Chi-Town was Ronald Coe's, who hung with the likes of Frank Knight, Aaron Director, George Stigler, and, hold for it, Fuck Milton Friedman! Milton Friedman, among others. Friedman's role was in defending Coe's at an infamous gathering of Chicago economists assembled to debate the merits of what is known as the Coe's Theorem. As the story goes, Uncle Stinky Fart was the lone supporter among scores of economists at a nerd house party. By the end of the night, Friedman had flipped the entire group in support of Coe's. Here's the theorem in a nutshell. A famous British economist named Arthur Pigou published a theory that lower prices spurred consumer spending. 
which in turn spurred investment that contributed to full employment. Okay, so the key to Pagu's theory was that government had a role in regulating the market and creating conditions that favored low prices and support of the lower classes to be able to buy things. Coase felt his contribution to the world was a rejection of this theory on the principle that government intervention carried external costs that were, in a roundabout way, contributing to market inefficiencies. Government, according to Coase and others, is perhaps the biggest example of what they refer to as externalities, something outside of the most fundamental elements of a transaction that add to the cost of it. The idea being that absent such externalities, the market is the most efficient way to transact. Boring. And so to illustrate his case, he actually used the FCC allocation of spectrum as his prime example, and here is where our stories intersect. Quoting from one of my favorite books, as you well know, called The Illusion of Free Markets by Bernard Harcourt, quote, in 1959, Coase had published an article called the Federal Communications Commission in which he argued that broadcast frequencies should be allocated in a manner that takes into account economic efficiency, specifically that frequencies should be assigned to higher value users, end quote. Translation, don't create a bureaucratic structure that hands out licenses based on fairness or any measure other than someone's ability to pay for it. Translation to the translation, just give broadcast licenses to rich people. This is a massively important point because the Coe's theorem, applied originally to spectrum allocation, would be adopted on a wholesale basis by nearly every administration from Reagan forward. Essentially, what Coase was arguing was that spectrum was finite and therefore scarce. But since government oversight carries hidden costs, externalities, by nature of its intervention, people, rules, red tape, etc., it artificially increases the cost of spectrum. Therefore, instead of adding to the cost of something like a radio or television frequency, it should simply set a high price and get the fuck out of the way. The intention there is to maximize the one-time purchase price with little to no intervention or barriers to entry, but to the highest bidder, thereby placing this all-important information vehicle out of reach of everyday citizens and into the hands of the moneyed class. And that is exactly what happened. It's also exactly why we sometimes need to take the words and ideas of economists with a grain of salt. Now, because I feel like we've worked through a great deal of free market theory, unfuckers are prepared to dig even a little deeper. So if I can beg your indulgence for a moment, I want to play a clip of an interview with Duke University Research and Economics professor Steve Metema. Metema is a prolific author, and he's covered Coase extensively. This interview was actually during his tenure at the University of Colorado, and he does a really good job distilling the Coase theorem, how it has no practical application, and how it was applied in an unlikely, and in my opinion, dangerous arena. Take a listen. Well, the Coase theorem is one of the more fascinating ideas in the history of post-war economics. And what's particularly interesting about it is that it's attracted an enormous amount of attention, literally thousands of academic articles dealing with it, in spite of the fact that it deals exclusively with a world that doesn't exist. That's the fiction part. That's the fiction part. Okay. It's theoretically nice, tight, and actually quite amazing and wonderful in a lot of ways, but it has absolutely no real-world applicability whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But what's the legal part? The, the legal part is that the theorem deals with the assignment of legal rights, and it tells us that no matter what judges do, 
in a frictionless world, there would be no impact whatsoever on the allocation of resources in society. So in, in essence, it says law doesn't matter. Institutions don't matter in a frictionless world. And the idea happened to captivate the minds of all sorts of people, particularly at the University of Chicago, but also a lot of other places, and in fact became part of the basis, especially the ethical basis for the whole economic analysis of law. Something I definitely want to make clear, from what I understand, Coase himself was disappointed that his legacy was tethered to the interpretation of what he considered to be a theoretical foundation for economic examination of externalities. I don't believe he intended it to be a doctrinal element of neoliberal politics and the basis for legal analysis of economic questions. Oh, I did not see that coming. That being said, a great example of this happening was Antonin Scalia, who considered the Coase theorem to be a fundamental truth. Not only did he frequently cite it, it's enshrined in the teachings at the George Mason Law School that bears his name. Metema published a research paper that documents 36 cases in which the Coase theorem is specifically cited in the opinion and 4,000 others in which it's referenced. So this small idea that was intended to inform an approach to measuring efficiencies in a given system was extracted from the theoretical universe and placed squarely in the real world. And it had real world consequences in our politics and our legal system. Shit just got real. Where it matters to us today, is that it grew from a model based on the FCC's treatment of spectrum allocation. It became so fundamental to our understanding of who should control the media in this country that policymakers, legal experts, economists, and broadcasters themselves understood this to be the law of the land. And there's no question that the germ of this idea that started in a house party of nerds in Chicago became the North Star of neoliberalism and the beginning of the end of fairness, competition, and equal time. And what is Aleppo? What was that for? Eh, just felt like it. UNFTR is also sponsored by our over-caffeinated members, Kryn G, Jennifer S, G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Bree X, Brian, Awesome A, Ahsoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 2. Reagan and Clinton. The best quarterback and wide receiver combo in the game. We've reached the point now with media consolidation that no more than six, my count is four, but no more than six large international corporations control at least 80% of the true national distribution of news in this country. And these very large corporations, news is a small part of what they do. They make um, Defense Department products, they run theme parks, they have all kinds of issues in Washington. They need legislation stopped, they need legislation put in to benefit them, they need legislation passed, they need legislation stopped. And so, forgive my reporter's language if you must, we have a situation in which very big business is in bed with very big government in Washington, whether that government be controlled at any given time by Republicans or Democrats. And for their mutual advantage, they work together. Uh, what the big corporation wants are things that Washington can give. What any administration, people in power in Washington want, uh, they don't want reporters digging around on stories that will embarrass them. They want what's known in the trade as sweetheart coverage. 
this, this is a collaboration at the top. I'm not suggesting some widespread conspiracy, if you will, but this is the way things now work. Reagan's eight years in office seemed at times dedicated to destroying the independence of media, writes Brian Karam in Free the Press. Quote, the Reagan administration expanded the number of television stations any single person or company could own from 7 to 12 in 1985. Reagan abolished guidelines for minimal amounts of non-entertainment programming in 1985. In 1985, the FCC dropped guidelines for how much advertising could be carried. By deregulating the industry, he allowed fewer owners to make greater decisions, ensuring a survival of the richest scenario. But the coup de grace was in 1985, when FCC Chairman Fowler, remember him on fuckers? When FCC Chairman Fowler began dismantling the Fairness Doctrine. That year, the FCC released a report on general Fairness Doctrine obligations that stated that being fair hurt the public interest and violated free speech rights guaranteed by the First Amendment, end quote. So this is part and parcel of what we covered in part one. This period made for strange bedfellows with liberals arguing that the doctrine wasn't in conflict with free speech, conservatives defending the First Amendment when it suited them, broadcasters telling Congress they actually thought the doctrine was good, but not perfect, and so on. We litigated that enough. The part I want to focus on is the move in 1985 to loosen the ownership standards. This was a critical move done to theoretically allow for greater competition through consolidation, the most counterintuitive argument ever made. And of course, it resulted in the situation described by Dan Rather just a minute ago. This is where Bill Clinton picks up a 50-yard pass from Ronald Reagan several years later. By expanding the limits of spectrum ownership within individual markets, Reagan loosened the cap on the bottle of deregulation. Midway through the Clinton years, Bill Clinton twisted it off completely and let the genie out of the bottle with the Telecommunications Act of 1996. So let's hear from Clinton himself and invite his id to translate. This historic legislation, in my way of thinking, really embodies what we ought to be about as a country and what we ought to be about in this city. It clearly enables the age of possibility in America to expand, to include more Americans. Ah, the opening platitude, the age of possibility. This is where I squint and bite my lip a bit. Works every time. It will create many, many high-wage jobs. That's the first must-have, first rule of legislation. Just say it will create more jobs. It will provide for more information and more entertainment to virtually every American home. Unless you're really poor and live in a rural area, because we're going to let the market determine who gets the internet. Unlike that time we forced the phone companies to extend service to everyone in the country. Because I am the face of neoliberalism. But don't take my word for it. Just listen to the three-part series that UNFTR produced on my time in office. It embodies our best values by supporting the kind of market reforms that the vice president mentioned, as well as the V-chip. Well, that's the thing that old Al Gore really wanted, so parents could manage what their kids watch. I'm sure that's going to work out great. And every single kid in America won't see hardcore porn by the time they're five years old. And it brings us together, and it was passed by people coming together. This bill is an indication of what can be done when Republicans and Democrats work together in a spirit of genuine cooperation to advance the public interest and bring us to a better future. 
Returning to Karam to describe the act that fairness and accuracy in reporting called, quote, bought and paid for by corporate media lobbies, here's Karam. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 was the first significant overhaul of the country's telecommunications law since the Communications Act of 1934. The act's stated objective was to open up markets to competition by removing regulations and barriers to entry. The idea being that with the emerging internet and cable television markets, anybody in the world should be able to jump in and compete. It was sold as a way to lower the barriers of entry into the market, making for greater competition and democratization of the telecommunications world. In other words, it only encouraged the monopolies that the act stated it would prevent. Instead of allowing more competition, it only made it easier for the monopolies to gobble up smaller companies, becoming larger and more dominant along the way, end quote. And that is exactly what happened. Public companies went into a feeding frenzy, buying frequencies at absurd multiples. As consumers eventually moved away from broadcast media with the rise of the tech giants, these high prices would eventually come back to haunt them. But it had the opposite of the stated goal of increasing competition because the only companies that could afford to buy these frequencies were either public companies or venture-backed companies seeking to go public. So in a matter of a few years, individual operators in the biggest media markets had cashed out. And in their place, conglomerates, shrunk staffs, streamlined programming to cut costs, relied on national formats that killed market-specific identities, and all but eliminated public benefit programming. Spectrum had been fully commoditized. So that's the broadcast side of things that's often overlooked because the headlines behind Telecom 96 were more about the internet. It was unclear to most Americans just how important the internet would become in all of our lives, but that's where the Clinton administration really had some keen insight. Remember that Al Gore invented the internet. In all seriousness, you might remember from our Clinton series that the administration was very connected to Silicon Valley and the so-called New Democrats were keen to harness the tech sector in support of its anti-poverty initiatives. There was a true belief, and much of it justified, that the government needed to clear the barriers to entry to telecommunications that had been previously restricted when the baby bells were broken up. The fear at the time, again, that was founded to a large degree, was that the companies most appropriate to invest in lighting up the nation with access were the telecom companies. Before wireless, fiber, and cable, it was the phone companies that were seen as the primary access points to bringing consumers the internet. Without the ability to transform this access nationally, many feared the United States would lag behind other nations because it restricted investment into infrastructure. There's a war out there, old friend, a world war. And it's not about who's got the most bullets. It's about who controls the information, what we see and hear, how we work, what we think. It's all about the information. So the stated goal of the bill was to, quote, accelerate the deployment of an advanced capability that will enable subscribers in all parts of the United States to send and receive information in all of its forms, voice, data, graphics, and video over a high-speed switched interactive broadband transmission capability, end quote. As usual, the United States, especially under the new Democrats who were in power at this all-important intersection of technology and demand, pursued a market approach to solve the problem of connectivity. Incentives were given to large corporations, very few restrictions were placed on them, and as many obstacles were cleared as possible. And did it work? You bet. That's why the United States is so competitive in the digital arena. And I'm not just talking about tech companies, although they were certainly among the largest beneficiaries of deregulation. 
but our entire financial and banking system, communications and supply chain, you name it. The whole damn system is wrong! Ah! On the other side of the world, the next closest competitor is, of course, China. And there's an argument to be made that China is ahead of us in terms of connectivity and internet usage. China pursued a centralized planning route that brought it to the same point as the United States and forced the birth of a tech sector. Europe, on the other hand, lags behind because of the fractured nature of regulations, privacy issues, national interests, and lack of a whole Europe conglomerate strategy. It is, after all, made up of different countries. So now the United States is beginning to compete with China in other areas of the world, such as Africa, and they're both encroaching on the Mediterranean, which has fallen significantly behind other parts of the world. China calls this their Belt and Road Initiative, which is commonly referred to as the Digital Silk Road. The point is, we cannot dismiss the gains that were made to modernize the economy, to foster the tech sector, and to set us up for success to compete in the coming years. There's a flip side to that coin. There's always a flip side. Ours is that we're beholden to the tech giants and the conglomerates who rule the airwaves and the internet. China is, of course, beholden to the interests of the CCP. In our case, the data is owned by private companies. They determine what we see, what we hear, and what we purchase. In China's case, their government does. So let me ask you, is there a difference? In Europe, they're leading with security and privacy first. In the US and China, these ships have sailed. A Brookings analysis by Stuart Brotman 20 years after deregulation offered a muted but sanguine review of its effectiveness. So let's go through the high points of his critique, and then I'll offer my two cents before the next chapter. Quote, by 2001, concentration within the industry actually increased, with only four companies in the United States handling 95% of local telecommunications service. Verizon, SBC, Bell South, and Quest, end quote. Quote, according to the United States Telecom Association, broadband providers have made $1.4 trillion in capital investments from 1996 through 2014, end quote. Quote, and the national broadband map shows that all parts of the country, 50 states along with all U.S. territories, now have broadband service, as the law intended. Competition from new entrants, notably Google, has provided competitive incentives for upgrading the speed of fixed broadband even further. Today, fixed broadband at 100 megabits per second download or greater is available to 65% of Americans, up from only 11% in 2010. End quote. Quote, competition remains vigorous in mobile broadband, which has virtually universal availability with 97% of Americans able to choose among three or more mobile providers. End quote. So he concludes with, quote, these metrics do not demonstrate that the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was an unqualified success, but there are evidence of the law's real economic and consumer benefits, end quote. So here's my two cents before we get into the next chapter, which illustrates the true problem with our approach to communications, by the way. Building a national infrastructure is daunting and requires a coordinated investment. Here at home, we chose to mint the tech sector. In return, they've recorded unfathomable profits and are completely in control of our data and the information we consume. And what Americans got in return for this is Donald Trump, stagnant wages and unequal access to broadband. In China, they got the same or better in terms of technology, but have also ceded their privacy and digital lives to a central authority. Not better, probably worse, just different. 
Europe is taking its time, deciding first and foremost how to protect the consumer. It might lag behind in terms of competitiveness and technology, but it has placed the consumer at the center of the debate. So it sounds like there's a fair argument for the free market versus a centralized approach like China's. In terms of privacy and being at the mercy of either corporations or a central government, at least Verizon and Google don't have the power to incarcerate. But in terms of the economic argument, consider this. More than 500 communities around the country operate publicly owned internet networks. In general, these networks are cheaper, faster, and more transparent in their pricing than their private sector counterparts, despite lacking Comcast and Verizon's gigantic economies of scale. Because the people operating municipal broadband network serve communities rather than large shareholders on Wall Street, they have a vested interest in respecting net neutrality principles. In fact, an article in Fast Company covered the, quote, unequivocal success of an effort in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to build its own high-speed network. According to Consumer Reports, quote, Chattanooga's municipal broadband network is the top-rated internet provider in the entire U.S., end quote. Me, boy. Is that the Chattanooga choo-choo? This tracks with one of our familiar themes, and that's the assumption that privatization is always superior to public services. And it's a great jumping off point for our next chapter. Chapter three, title two and net neutrality. Pick a side, any side, as long as it's the side of big business. I'm excited about this next chapter on fuckers because it allows me to set this up with an excerpt from a listener's essay on the FCC. So more than a year ago, I received a message from a listener named Tristan E., a political science student at a community college in Los Angeles with a deep interest in many things, including the FCC's role in undermining net neutrality. I flagged the email at the time after reading his essay on the subject and returned to it when I was putting this episode together. I asked Tristan if he would allow me to source him for the episode, and he responded graciously. Yet another example of the powerful, collaborative nature of our journey together on this pod. Let me begin with Tristan's framing of net neutrality as a concept before digging further into his explanation of the issue that we face as consumers. Here's Tristan. Quote, net neutrality advocated viewing the complete neutrality of content delivery as the cornerstone of the open internet. A bill was proposed in Congress mandating by law to prevent internet service providers from practicing data discrimination as a competitive tactic. Verizon lobbyists shot this down shortly after its initial discussion. Surprisingly, many organizations support a free and open internet. Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and many human rights activist groups all believe that an open internet is critical for the democratic exchange of ideas and free speech, end quote. So I like this because, like the Fairness Doctrine debate illustrated, not all participants have the same view. To me, this one is more logical, though. It makes sense that providers of service would be opposed to the government dictating the terms of service. But on the other hand, it benefits the tech giants greatly to have an open internet with as many users surfing at high speeds. Now back to Tristan to explain the concept more fully. Quote, in 2002, the term net neutrality was born. The concept was proposed in response to efforts by the FCC to require internet solutions providers to share their infrastructure and cable lines with other ISPs. After much debate, the Supreme Court finally struck down the regulation, siding against in National Cable and Telecommunications Association versus Brand X Internet Services. The main sticking point 
was whether internet service providers were considered information services, similar to traditional media outlets, which allow users to upload and share content on the internet. In 2015, new net neutrality guidelines were established, which barred providers like Comcast or Time Warner Cable from deliberately throttling internet traffic from specific websites based on demand or business preferences. The concept that all data on the internet should be treated equally is the foundation of net neutrality, forcing all companies, governments, and organizations to treat all content equally, regardless of user, platform, or application. Net neutrality requires all internet service providers to provide equal access to all internet traffic and that no one service or website can be blocked or throttled, end quote. You're a smart motherfucker, that's right. So this was big news at the end of the Obama administration that we would pursue a path towards a more open internet. Here's former chairperson Tom Wheeler celebrating the FCC's commitment to an open internet in 2015 near the end of Obama's term in office. Today, the FCC's open internet rules go into effect. There's now a referee on the field to protect consumers and innovators online. Not only does that mean no blocking, no throttling, and no fast lanes, it also means vigilant oversight as the internet continues to evolve. After a decade of debate, these rules finally provide strong safeguards for free expression and innovation on the internet, and at the same time, promote continued investment in our nation's broadband networks. For more information, go to FCC.gov slash open internet. Oh, okay, cool. Let's go to the uh, website, www.fcc.gov slash open internet, and, huh, page not found. I wonder why. John Oliver has actually done two full features on the issue of net neutrality, which should tell you something about the importance of it. The Internet, repository of all human knowledge and videos of goats singing Taylor Swift songs. His first one was such a success that his audience wound up crashing the FCC's website. The second one revealed the emergence of Trump's FCC hatchet man and bad guy in our story, Ajit Pai. And the ISPs now have a powerful ally on their side because Trump has appointed a new head of the FCC, and it is this guy. Ajit Pai is known for being anti-regulation, pro-merger. Last month, he said he wanted to, quote, take a weed whacker to current FCC rules and predicted net neutrality's, quote, days are numbered. Wow. Okay. Days are numbered and take a weed whacker are serial killer talk. (laughs) So that is pretty ominous. When the Code of Federal Regulations looks out of its window at night, there's just Ajit Pai standing silently, (laughs) holding his weed whacker, waiting for his chance. Both episodes are terrific if you want to take a closer look at this particular issue. But on with our story today, let's take a closer inspection of Mr. Weedwacker himself. Prior to ascending to the top of Trump's FCC, Pai had a fairly distinguished legal career. His last place of employment was a large law firm called Jenner & Block, which is known for its revolving door. And what's this? He was also counsel at Verizon from 2001 to 2003. Blow job! <coughs> 
In 2017, Republican Ajit Pai effectively gutted net neutrality rules in the United States and ended the era of the internet as a public utility. While his ruling would make him something of a villain in democratic circles, especially among those who advocated for personal internet freedoms and greater consumer protections, it was actually Barack Obama himself who appointed Ajit Pai to the FCC in 2012 on the recommendation of Mitch fucking McConnell. Well, well, well. How the turntables. Pai was unanimously approved by the Senate and went on to thank Obama for the appointment five years later by killing the Obama-era rules adopted in 2015 that served as the basis for net neutrality and broadband regulations. Pai, as with most FCC chairs throughout recent history, is a free market capitalist who believes greater competition and less regulations are a boon to consumers. Here's the basis of Pai's argument according to the FCC's 2017 ruling. Quote, we determine that this light-touch information service framework will promote investment and innovation better than applying costly and restrictive laws of a bygone era to broadband internet access service, end quote. Inciting Telecom 96, Pai argues that Congress intended to draw a line between highly regulated information services and more heavily regulated telecommunication services. And that's essentially where the distinction lies between the two competing groups. Pai's predecessor, Tom Wheeler, ruled in the opposite direction in 2015, classifying broadband services as a telecommunication service under Title II of the Telecommunications Act. And Title II is important. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Pai went on to say that Congress promoted the development of the Internet to, quote, preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists, unfettered by federal or state regulation, end quote. While proponents of greater regulation and ISPs and net neutrality fought hard to protect consumer interests, Pai's ruling was hardly surprising. His biography on the FCC's website, which is a government entity, reads like a love letter to unfettered capitalism. Chairman Pai's regulatory philosophy is informed by a few simple principles. Rules that reflect these principles will result in more innovation, more investment, better products and services, lower prices, more job creation, and faster economic growth. Consumers benefit most from competition, not preemptive regulation. Free markets have delivered more value to American consumers than highly regulated ones. So we have to distinguish between net neutrality as a concept and then Title II as a statute. Net neutrality is a concept within a larger one, and that is how broadband is classified. Okay, so net neutrality specifically considers whether ISPs are common carriers. Common carriers are required to deliver the same service to all classes of consumer. And that's an important part of the equation. But the larger idea behind Title II was to treat internet providers as utilities, which carries far more weight than simply customer service. Full adoption of Title II, which is what we had for the briefest moment at the end of Obama's term, would reclassify broadband as a utility and require companies to do things like replace old networks that are being decommissioned, ensure that everyone has equitable and affordable access to broadband, build in resiliency to prevent blackouts and downtime, offer universal service to prevent digital redlining, schedule replacement and maintenance to better prepare for emergencies, mandate that unfucking the Republic is universally available and accessible to all. The pandemic changed the conversation completely, thankfully, though it didn't necessarily change our approach. 
but at least it demonstrated the value of universal access to high-speed broadband in education, healthcare, emergency services, and work. Senator Ed Markey has introduced a bill that will help the country get back on track and restore the authority to the FCC to rechart the path to net neutrality. Here's a good quick analysis from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Quote, the Net Neutrality and Broadband Justice Act and its companion in the House of Representatives aim to put a stop to these abuses by reclassifying broadband Internet services as telecommunication services under Title II of the Communications Act, thereby giving the FCC the authority they need to reinstate net neutrality and lay down equitable rules of the road once more. While the bill is narrow, what it does is important. It prevents the FCC from reclassifying broadband Internet services again in the future. This bill stops the back and forth we've experienced with one FCC instating net neutrality rules only for another to strip away those protections, end quote. So it's still too early to tell whether Markey's going to get much support for this. And right now it's in committee. So we'll see what it looks like when it emerges and it's marked up. But if anything, what will hold it back is the shift from FCC regulation to codified law, the back and the forth that the foundation describes. So long as it stays as a regulatory maneuver, it will ebb and flow with whoever is in power. But once it's law, it's law. So I have to imagine that the lobbies are in full offensive battle formation to block attempts to codify Title II. Chapter 4. Bring it home, Max. Here's the acting chairwoman of the FCC illustrating a few essential points for us. Let me start by saying that she is an advocate for net neutrality and is only in an acting capacity, but I would consider her an ally in this effort to a degree. But there's more to unpack here. Just take a listen. Hi, I'm Jessica Rosenworcel, the acting chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission. In May, the FCC launched the $3.2 billion Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, the largest program ever to help Americans afford broadband service. In just five months, we have already enrolled over 5.5 million households who are receiving up to $50 or as much as $75 off their monthly internet bill. Separately, we have created the Emergency Connectivity Fund, the largest effort in our nation's history to make sure that all students have access to the broadband and devices they need outside of school. And during this program's first application window, we received requests for over $5 billion to fund 9.1 million connected devices and 5.4 million broadband connections. The overwhelming response to these programs demonstrates one thing. There is real demand for help with broadband affordability. No, acting chairwoman. It proves something different altogether. That the free market will never step in to provide such an essential service in the modern economy. Only the government can make this happen, thus proving the necessity for more clear and robust oversight over connectivity to close the digital divide. I'm not criticizing the acting chair. She's doing what's in her power right now to respond to the need for access. The students in poor and rural communities who didn't have access during the pandemic and are suffering severe learning gaps now that schools have fully returned to in-person. Those who suffered quietly without access to quality care and were limited by broadband inefficiencies. Those who weren't able to thrive in certain white-collar industries tailor-made for remote work because of unstable connections. The chair's exuberance over the demand for service, the volume of requests for relief on monthly bills, the money required to fill in the gaps left by tech companies, the reality of digital redlining, 
all evidence that the free market isn't free. I would argue it's way more costly. Corporations require regulations and commands. They will never simply elect to serve the public good, which is why the FCC, in this case, has to spend billions of dollars covering their asses. It's all such a farce. Then there's the fact that they're all leveraging technology literally created by the government. The externalities that were so anathema to Coase and his ilk were typically measured in costs such as price, regulation, and wages, all referred to in negative terms. Externalities. More modern thinking is thankfully putting externalities in their proper place. Neoliberal economists price in factors like wages and regulations as negative externalities and try to eliminate them. Modern thinkers understand that the most prominent and deleterious externality is greed. And when you live in an inverted totalitarian state run by corporations, it is the single greatest factor there is. Water, sewer and stormwater infrastructure, health insurance, energy distribution, public education, prison, the military, the internet. None of these things should be in the hands of private enterprise, and yet here we are. You think Ajit Pai was just some sort of Chicago school free market acolyte? Nah. He's just another fucking corporate shill who moved effortlessly through the revolving door. Today, he's a partner at a huge private equity firm in New York called Searchlight Capital. Guess what it specializes in? Broadband, telecommunications, fiber, online payment systems, cable systems, and managed IT, among other niches, because of course he fucking does, and of course they fucking do. We need Markey's bill to succeed, and I'm not sure if we have the time or the momentum to move it ahead in this Congress. If Dems hold the Senate, perhaps it can continue, but should they lose the House, it's unlikely to find a home until the next time around. Humans aren't externalities. Public services shouldn't be privatized. Fuck Ajit Pai. Here endeth the lesson. Old anchorman, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. All right, welcome into post-show musings, everybody. I appreciate your indulgence on this one. This this was a lot. I know it was very text-heavy and it was very, I don't know, it was indulgent. But it's it's one of those things, it's such an important thing that nobody really thinks about, although net neutrality did get its fair due, I think, at the time. It just sort of went away. But it went away in such a fashion that I think people just sort of shrugged and they're like, oh, well. And then the pandemic came along. And it was such perfect fucking timing to illustrate how needless it was to try and pursue a free market strategy to something as fundamental to our health and the economic health of the country, such as the internet. I mean, it's incredible. So remember all of those pictures of the kids in the Taco Bell parking lot trying to scam off the Wi-Fi just to do their fucking homework? Or all of the issues that were presented on tribal territories that had little to no access, rural communities where people just, they, they just couldn't do work because they couldn't leave the fucking house. 
We're just sort of insane that way. And it takes the most extreme measures to just put our face like right into the dog shit and be like, here, fucking smell this stupid. But that's what it was. But bizarrely, and I don't know how you feel about this, but like net neutrality, when it was going away, when John Oliver was doing the segments and when it it was at least everybody sort of like got hip to it. It was like the it was the movement of the moment. I don't feel like it came back in any meaningful way. Like, I don't feel like we're having this discussion today. Like Marky's bill, really not a lot of love, not a lot of support, not a lot of people talking about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I said as much a couple of weeks ago when you teased the FCC episode and net neutrality, I was like, oh yeah, everyone said our lives were going to be over and then it didn't, nothing happened. So I'm just completely, part of it I think was willful, not ignorance, but just like, this is one thing I don't know anything about and I can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to learn about it. Like that that's where I was then. Yeah. So I didn't really know anything about it. Like this was all brand new information well, and, and I it, haven't heard about it in years. I think it's a case of we got ours. So why would it be on our radar? Like we've got great connectivity here. Yeah, definitely part partially privileged. Like yeah. I don't have to worry about that ever. But it just never got addressed again and we just so digital redlining, still a fucking thing. There's still companies that there aren't enough bills enacted to force these companies to do the right thing. We gave that example of how you could literally look at the maps. So here's here's a related you know, aspect to this is you could look at the maps of where Amazon Prime was available and where it wasn't. That's a form of digital redlining. Where access is strong is a form of digital redlining. So the key element here is when, when the bells, when Ma Bell was lighting up the country for telephone, hardwired telephone access. They were not allowed to skip a single community. If there was a person on the top of a fucking mountain in the middle of Montana, they had to run a phone line there because they understood and the government understood that they had such an economy of scale that it it wasn't a big deal that for them to, to have to go into every single community because they were making such a fortune on everything else. All they had to do was raise long distance calls, a cent, and they fucking made up for everything, right? Well, it was the same rules applied for telecommunications, but somewhere along the way, somebody made the determination that, no, that's okay. Just let the free market decide where they want to go. Eventually, they'll get there. But they don't, and they haven't, and they fucking won't unless you reclassify them as a utility, as a public utility and a service. And the pandemic demonstrated every last fucking inch of this whole thing. I mean, every, we couldn't have asked for a better scenario to create momentum for net neutrality. And yet, not there. Just not being talked about. So hopefully in conjunction with the fairness doctrine, there's a greater understanding now of I think Knudsen said it best last week where he was like, you know, the smallest actions with the largest possible fucking mandate. I mean, it's amazing how much they oversee, but how little they wind up impacting the whole thing. The broadcast spectrum issue, the fairness doctrine issue, I think those ships have sailed because you can't have rules apply to broadcast spectrum now that don't also apply to the internet. And if you try to encroach on free speech on the internet, as you would in public airwaves, which are, yes, scarce, there's no fucking way that it's going to happen. I mean, there's just no way in this time, in this era, in this age, and there's a good argument to be made that it shouldn't because yeah. it's free speech. The internet also is 
it's not really public. It's not. Everything on the internet is owned by people, for the most part. That's right. So Twitter can kick Donald Trump off because it's a private company. Right. Sure, it's on the internet, but so... But that's the choice that we've made on Fuckers, right? We have ceded that authority and that ability. That's what, And that's why I wanted to draw the example of such an extreme example of China with centralized planning authority versus letting the free market determine it. You can't yell and scream about Twitter kicking Donald Trump off unless you want to have some sort of system where the government as a central agency controls that as well. Or it's a fucking free for all and there's no such thing as hate speech. That's why this is very tricky. Wants. That, and it is. That's what somebody like Musk wants. We're going to get into another villain pretty soon that I think is an, an important corollary to this story. And sort of for me, really, so it's not... Is it Tipper Gore? <laughs> fuck you, Tipper Gore! Oh, poor Tipper. Left by Al. Yeah, sure. I mean, Al fucked her over. She just uh, sort of cast us. I mean, yeah, fuck her for the stuff she was doing. But Yeah, but I mean... He turned out to be kind of a dick. I don't care... <laughs> what people in their marriages do as long as it's not abusive or controlling. If you're a shitty husband, that's your fucking business. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. I just felt bad for Tipper. No. Okay. I think she did a lot of harm. In that era, for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was, Has her, she repented? that was her little pet project. You're right. Yeah. Uh, well, Eminem put her in her place. Well, I yes, know that as a basic well, white guy. Well, let me be me. So that's let right. me see. To be completely fair... Two live crew kind of put her in her place with their 1990 obscenity trial, which made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Where Sorry, was I going? You were, you're going to have a new villain. I oh, think you were talking about Barney. Yes. No. So he's not the villain. He's not. No, but I see it as a very strong corollary to this episode because we're again, it, it, this is all about seating authority and where you want these lines drawn and who you are in a de facto way electing to be in control of everything. And the way that we've organized our system, we have allowed certain individuals, almost monarchs in their own right, to be in control of stuff that you never imagine them them being in control of. And so it's it's frying pan into the fire sometimes. We don't want a central authority and a, and a government like China cracking down on all privacy. That's a bad, bad fucking model. But there are models out there that give us the sort of the light and the way as to how this can be constructed. It just means that we have to be more patient, and that's certainly not the American way, and that is Europe. So protecting privacy, putting the consumer at the center of these things, making sure that our data isn't bought and sold a thousand fucking times, making sure that we can maintain you know, uh, privacy over our thoughts and our actions and our speech and all of those things, and also having certain hate speech measures in place to make sure that society doesn't get fucking out of control. There are ways to accomplish this, but the United States system has bled into, like look at Canada as an example. They had a really tightly controlled environment. The Canadian uh, system was such that they had to play a certain amount of Canadian content. They certainly had fairness type of rules in, in place, but now they all watch American media and it doesn't fucking matter. And we're infecting their minds. Except now all our media is filmed there. <laughs> right, for tax breaks from yeah. Vancouver, which we appreciate so much. <laughs> It's just all crazy. I watch Canadian TV. What do you watch? Uh, Degrassi. And Shorzy. Yeah. Give her your balls a tug, eh? Okay. I, I mean, I don't actively watch Degrassi, but it was one of my favorite shows growing up. I didn't even realize that was Canadian, to be honest. Dark years, dark years. Fair. Can, well, it was also, some... okay. Well, Thank there's you, Degrassi please. Junior High. That was the original in the 80s. 
And then the Degrassi, the next generation, was in the 2000s, the very early 2000s. So sure, that one you, but you should have. I'm shook. There yeah. was a Degrassi in the 80s. That's where it came from? Yes. And really? then the parents. Some How of, did that escape me? I don't, I don't know. Some of the, my mom used to watch it. She would like, no, because the parents huh. in, or the parents in Next Gen were in, it's like Star Trek. No, huh? they were in. I thought that was Boy Meets World. That's Girl Meets World. <laughs> That's Girl Meets now. World. Yeah. But. They did the same thing as Degrassi and they had the continuity between characters over generations. Mm-hmm. Then why can't I have a Miami Vice fucking spinoff with the children of Crockett and Tubbs? God damn it. Wait, they had babies together? Because net neutrality is not funding it. God, fucking FCC. It's Tipper Gore's fault that you can't have a Miami that Vice reboot. Bitch. Because people don't we don't do we don't do continuations, we do reboots. And when we do continuations, we you know, we mess up the canon like we were talking about. Right, right. Things have to right. get retconned. Yeah. Again and again and again. But yeah, well, they did. Fa- it takes. Sadly, they I killed Tubbs's family. Through. But Crockett's got a family out there. I mean, they were just divorced. Baby Crockett. Say it again. Say it again. Why? Go ahead. Why? Did I say it wrong? What did I do? Davy Crockett. Don't make fun. Okay. What? what? It's fucking Sonny Crockett. And thank you. Okay. I don't. I don't know who Sonny Crockett is. Oh, I have the outro to do. Oh, we have book love too. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. You ready? You went. Oh, I don't have time, and then you launched. I don't. Into I gotta go. Thing. Well, this was your fault. To- everything's my fault. I didn't say that. I'm just saying specifically right now. Listen, we've got some book love. It's a reminder uh, from last week. We've got Stephen J. Simmons, "The Fairness Doctrine in the Media," again written in 1978, holds up though because it's prevailing thinking at the time, and eventually, you know, just a matter of a few years after the book was. Uh, originally came out, the Fairness Doctrine went away. So of the moment and very salient. Brian Karam got free the press, the death of American journalism, how to revive it. Ken Aletta, backstory inside the business of news. Uh, there aren't any direct quotes in here, but there was some sentiment that I had pulled from it. And of course, Bernard Harcourt, my man, the illusion of free markets, punishment and the myth of natural order. There's a bunch of resources for this, by the way, that we've got linked on the website and in show notes as well. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Raz Baraka is the mayor of Newark, New Jersey's largest city. Manny Faces, like the many face God in the building. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Hey, if you haven't done it, just go to TomMcGovern.com or make sure you're following him on the socials. The show is hosted by The Gipper and distributed by Slick Willie. Send us your comments, your suggestions, your questions to UNFTRpod at Gmail for all the rest of the stuff. Listen, just go to the website, UNFTR.com. 99 has constructed a magical universe where you can get to anything and everything that your heart desires related to UNFTR. Okay? What? My show will be called Unfucking the Republic, The Next Generation. Oh, total continuity. Does that imply I'm dying? No. Getting fired? Well, I did threaten to fire you this morning on our call. You did? That's because you were being a brat. Was I? Yeah. Like a legit brat? I mean, a little bit. Cutie brat or just a brat? Uh, Like a little cute, but mostly annoying. I'm sorry. It's fine. Just don't fire me. 
Okay. I got to put food on the table. All right, unfuckers. We'll catch you for uh, show notes in the middle of the week, and then we'll catch you with our little corollary episode shortly thereafter. And then we'll catch you after that with show notes, and then we'll catch you again. Wait, you're not using some topical creams. We got some other things coming. Who the villain is? I'm not. You're not going to tease it. Give a hint. Mm, He's terrible. And let well, no, let unfuckers guess. Is this called engagement? This is called marketing. Okay, so it is a master of the universe. He's a prickly fella. Is he a pear? Prickly pear. He's not a prickly pear. Because that would imply he might be sweet on the inside. He's spiky hair, like Sonic the Hedgehog. Nope. Is he Sonic the Hedgehog's arch nemesis, Doctor Robotnik? He's not. Okay. Well, give more actionable tips. I'm trying to do it without giving it away. I know, but we're trying to engage people. Uh, he is a vulture capitalist. So he's a prick. He's a vulture capitalist. See that guy? And uh, a master of the universe. That's the thing you Extraordinarily made Extraordinarily wealthy. Oh, Donald Trump. And hates, I said wealthy. <laughs> and hates, I mean fucking hates democracy. See you next time. No matter what will happen, you will know what is true. And guess what? I know that. I know that. I know I can make it. Come on. Yeah.